This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. Turn to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. John wrote a few different books in the New Testament. He wrote a really long gospel at the beginning of the New Testament, but then he wrote three small epistles at the end of the New Testament. Now, I don't know about you, but I think I speak for all of us when I say that there are moments in life where God just humbles you, right? You think that you have a firm grasp on some subject, some topic, or maybe even something simple and routine, and then you, there's that moment where you are confronted with your own ignorance, I remember one of these moments for me. I was a freshman in college, and I was, as I was going to the University of Southern Mississippi, I was a part of a very large church there. And I had played trumpet in high school marching band. And so upon starting to attend that church, I joined the orchestra at this church because this was a big church. They had a 125-voice choir, a full orchestra, and, and every year they did this very big Christmas production very high quality, very professionally done. And I'm talking, yes, the choir, yes, the orchestra, but full dramatic cast, including live animals, camels, donkeys, and sheep inside the sanctuary. And I rehearsed for weeks privately on my own and and attending orchestra practice. But then came the first dress rehearsal. And this was where all the differing parts came together. And so this is where I started seeing the scenes and the drama and all everything unfold. And I remember the moment where it hit me. It was after Jesus is born, the angels have sung, the shepherds have visited, and now the orchestral fanfare began in order to introduce the Magi, the three kings, walking, marching down the aisle with camels and gifts in tow. But the scene on stage had dramatically changed. The set changed from a dusty cattle stall where Mary and Joseph held the little baby Jesus, changing to a living room scene where Mary and Joseph were standing beside an adorable little boy of three or four years of age. I was literally shocked. I was almost offended. I even thought, what kind of church is this? I mean, the Magi, like they were led by a star over the manger, right? They pushed the shepherds out of the way and they presented their gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Well, that's at least what our childhood nativities, our childhood nativity plays taught us. And it's what every nativity scene on our living room tables display to us, but it's not what the biblical account tells us. Biblical history tells us that the star led the Magi not to the manger, but to the house where the child was a few years later. But I had been in Sunday school for years. I sang in multiple Christmas cantatas in my life, and I helped dig out my grandmother's nativity scene every year so it could be displayed on our living room table. I knew the Christmas story, or at least I thought I did. But 
I learned that day in college that there's a lot more to the Christmas story than we often think. And you know, if we're all honest, I think we would admit today that there is so much behind Christmas that we don't think about often enough, or perhaps we don't even know to begin with. There exists so much more theology than we usually think. There is so much more discipleship than we usually consider. And there is so much, so much more life application to apply than perhaps we've thought about. And what I hope to show you throughout this Advent series is a glimpse, a glimmer of that more. And so today, as we look at the Bible together, I want you to see this staggering central truth. The manger of Jesus displays God's extravagant love for us. And in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, we get a glimpse of that extravagant love that God has for us, for me, for you. And so follow along in your scriptures or on the screen with me this morning as we read this paragraph from the New Testament. John writes this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Now, there are a few New Testament passages that teach us about the nature and effect of God's love, like 1 John chapter 4. And as he instructs us about God's love, he ties it directly to the manger of Jesus. But just like our friend Simeon last week, he draws a direct line between the manger of Jesus and the cross of Jesus. So this morning, I hope that you will follow along in your notes this morning as we look at this text together and as we hear the message of love that the manger of Jesus teaches us. And here's what we learn. We learn first, we need to know the uniqueness of God's love. Know the uniqueness of God's love. Now John uses two different phrases here in the text to direct us towards the nature of God's love, meaning that there is a love unlike any love we experience here on earth. Look with me at verse 7. He writes, love is from God. And in verse 8, he writes, God is love. So according to the scriptures here, love is from God, meaning that ultimate love comes ultimately from God. He is the source of ultimate love, 
And we also learn that God is love, meaning that God is the perfect embodiment of love, just as he is the perfect embodiment of all of his character traits. You know, as human beings, we love love, right? We love love. In entertainment, we love watching movies about love. As a matter of fact, according to one study, romance is the favorite movie genre among 77% of women, and this might surprise you, 55% of men. And romantic comedies are favored by even more of us, by 84% of women and 67% of men. We love watching movies about love. We also love to jam to love songs. One study shows that upwards of 60% of the top songs of the modern era are love songs. And in studying the classic era, at least 50% of the top songs from that era were love songs. And you even consider how we utilize the word love in our reasoning and advocacy in our everyday lives. When someone disagrees with us, one of our first thoughts or retorts is, I thought you loved me. And as we debate public policy, surrounding marriage and its subsequent benefits, some persuade by appealing to everyone's right to be loved and right to love in whatever way they choose to express that. Human beings love love. And the reality is there are many different expressions of human love, both romantic and platonic. However, The Bible tells us that even as we both seek and express love here on earth between human beings, our definitions and expressions are faulty at worst or incomplete at best. Because even the best and most meaningful expressions of human love lack their fullest expression apart from God. Why? Because the scriptures tell us here that his love is a perfect love. It's an ultimate love. And he neither defines his love on our terms or nor expresses his love on our terms. His love is unique. It's different. It's far more complete than ours. It is far more perfect than ours. His love is ultimate and we need it. We were made for it. We were made to receive it and we were made to express it. You see, for us as human beings, we are so accustomed to looking for love and expressing love simply horizontally from other human beings. But the scriptures point us to look for love vertically, vertically from God. And the more we understand his love and the more we receive his love, we will be better equipped to love God vertically and to best love human beings horizontally. 
So we need God to define our love, to inform our love, and to help us rightly express love. So as we consider the extravagant love that God has for us in the manger of Jesus, I want you to first know the uniqueness of God's love. But secondly, I want you to see the demonstration of God's love. See the demonstration of God's love. What's incredible here to learn is that God's love is not simply a concept. It's not just a feeling. And it's not just a stoic dogma reserved for some dusty shelf in the upstairs catechism room. It's not just a warm sentiment to cling to in times of difficulty or duress. God's love, the Bible tells us, is primarily a love of action. God does his love. He shares it. He gives it. He sends it, the text tells us. Look at verses 9 and 10. So what do we learn here? Well, this is what the scriptures teach us. In this, the love of God was made manifest. Okay, just stop there. In other words, the scriptures are telling us that here is how God demonstrated his love. So we learn that God's love is a love of action. It's more than mere sentiment. It includes sentiment, but it doesn't stop there. His love, the scriptures tell us, is primarily a love of action. And you see this throughout the entire Bible. Whether it's the Greek New Testament or the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the overwhelming majority of the uses of the word love in the Bible is some form of the Greek word agape or agapao. This is God's agape love that John is talking about here. And it's a different type of love we're used to. It carries the idea of deliberately willing another person's good. Or deliberately doing good for another. And so as God expresses his love towards us, he deliberately wills our good. He wants to give us what is best, what is good, what is right for us. How did he do it? Well, John tells us twice. Here is how God demonstrated his love, how he willed our good or how he gave us what is best. God sent his only son into the world, verse 9 tells us. In verse 10, he says it this way, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son. That's why, that's how the manger of Jesus displays God's extravagant love for us. Because Jesus' entire being encapsulates God's ultimate best for us. And we see that best demonstrated at the beginning of Jesus' life in the Bethlehem manger. God sent his son to us. 
But the Bethlehem manger will ultimately give way to Golgotha's cross as God again demonstrated his love for us. As Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I want that truth to just sit with you for a moment. Ponder that. God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. That's extravagant love. God gave to us when we took from him. And God gave us his very best while we were doing our very worst. That's an otherworldly kind of love. It's radical. I mean, humanly speaking, it makes sense that one would love someone, sacrifice for someone, or even die for someone who is at their very best, or we might deem as one of the best people in our lives, but to love someone, to sacrifice for someone, to even die for someone when they were at their very worst? That's radical. It's alien. It's otherworldly. Now, you might be listening this morning, and perhaps you're even thinking that you don't deserve God's love. And this might be surprising to hear in a Christian sermon this morning, but you would be right. You would be right. You don't deserve God's love. And just in case you're wondering, neither do I. As a matter of fact, none of us do We do not deserve his love. But I want you to know this truth as well this morning. Just because you do not deserve Jesus' love for you, that does not somehow mean that you are beyond his love. Because you're not. None of us is. God sent his son on that first Christmas morn to demonstrate for all time to people on earth that I really love you. And if you don't believe my words, I'll prove it to you by my actions. So brother and sister in Christ, this means that you never have to wonder if God loves you. When circumstances are really trying and you feel all alone and you feel abandoned by God, you never have to question, you never have to wonder, does God really love me? Or I guess God just stopped loving me or do you still love me? You never have to wonder that because God settled that for you on the cross of Jesus and it has never changed and it never will So this morning, I want you to know the uniqueness of God's love. I want you to see the demonstration of God's love. And thirdly, I want to challenge you to receive for yourself the purpose of God's love. 
Receive for yourself the purpose of God's love. Now John also tells us that there is a purpose behind God demonstrating his love towards you. There's a reason why he sent his only son to the manger to go to the cross. And it wasn't just warm feelings towards his most precious creation, us. And it wasn't just to give us a good example to follow or to provide us with a joyous holiday season in which we can sing some catchy songs, eat some fattening foods, gather together together as a family, and to exchange a few gifts. Look again with me at verses 9 and 10. God sent his only son into the world, so what? So that what? The text tells us in verse 9, so that we might live through him. And in verse 10, he tells us that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's just a really good $6,000 theological word for the satisfaction for our sins. So there's a purpose behind God sending his son Jesus to that Bethlehem manger. And at first glance, God gives us a gift accompanied by a blatant criticism of our condition. Has that ever happened to you? You get a beautifully wrapped present from a friend or a family member and you excitedly open it And it's a dieting book. And then you unwrap another one from another friend and it's another book. And this one is entitled Overcoming Selfishness. Now, if you say to them, thank you so much. You are in a sense admitting, for I am fat and obnoxious. And this is the point Tim Keller makes as he points us to consider that some gifts by their very nature make us swallow our pride. He goes on to say in his book, Hitting Christmas, there has never been a gift offered that makes you swallow your pride to the depths that the gift of Jesus Christ requires us to do. Christmas means that we are so lost, so unable to save ourselves, that nothing less than the death of the Son of God himself could save us. That means you are not somebody who can pull yourself together and live a morally good life. To accept the true Christmas gift, you have to admit you're a sinner. You need to be saved by grace. You need to give up control of your life. That is descending lower than any of us really wants to go. Yet Jesus Christ's greatness is seen in how far down he came to love us. Your spiritual regeneration and eventual greatness will be achieved by going down the same path. He, Jesus, descended into greatness. And the Bible says it's only through repentance that you come into his light. God purposely sent his son to save sinners, sinners like you and sinners like me. Jesus descended into our world to bring us into his. Your question is simply this. 
Will you admit, will you admit this morning to Jesus that you are that sinner he came to save? Will you believe that Jesus is God's son he sent to save you? Will you stop trying to control your life so that he might, so that he might lead you instead? If so, then this morning, receive the purpose of God's love for you in the manger. Okay, so the first... The first three principles we've seen lay the basis for the last two. So the first three principles that we've seen so far teach about God's love to us personally. The last two I want to show you from the text tell us what God's love does through us interpersonally. So fourthly, from the text, practice among the body the effect of God's love. So practice among the body, among fellow Christians, the effect of God's love. Now John makes it clear in this text that God's love towards us personally has an effect outwardly, interpersonally. God doesn't give his love to us without effect. We don't simply receive the gift of his love and just bask in it ourselves. We don't receive God's love and then go skipping through the meadow briskly through the fields and then just drop down and just make snow angels in God's love of, oh, how God loves me. Isn't it great that God loves me? He is just given and given and given his love to me. We don't receive his gift of love and then experience it for a little while and then just put it away in that dusty old box in the attic next to other gifts of Christmas's past that we just don't think we need anymore. No, God gives and gives and gives his love to us so that he might spread his love through us not just one time or two times but an infinite number of times regularly daily weekly monthly yearly throughout all the days of our lives and one of the primary effects that God's love to us has among other people is the love that we experience and practice among fellow Christians. Did you notice in this paragraph that it's basically the whole context that John is writing about? Look at how abundantly clear John makes this point. Verse seven, beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. He makes it very clear there that if we have experienced God's love, that it is going to outwardly manifest in the way in which we love one another. Then you look at verse 8. He says it in the negative sense. He says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. You see, again, if you've encountered the love of God, it's going to become outwardly manifest 
in your life. And then you look down at verse 11. He reiterates again, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. John tells us that one of the clearest ways we demonstrate that God has saved us, that we have experienced and received his love, is that we have an undeniable and even an abnormal to the world kind of love towards God's people. So, if you find yourself working through disagreements with your brothers and sisters in Christ rather than running away from disagreements or if you find yourself forgiving someone again and again and again rather than holding a grudge or if you welcome hard truths from other Christians rather than resisting them or if you sacrificially provide for those who aren't your blood relatives Even if you just find yourself loving with a deep kindred spirit and a deep brotherly affection, another brother, another sister in Christ who is not your natural family, someone that to the world, it just doesn't make sense that you would love them that deeply. This is God's love working through you because it's not natural to us. None of those practices I just listed come naturally to a human being. And so when we practice them, when we experience them, when we do them, we are demonstrating and showing the effect of God's love inside of us. But notice that the inverse is here as well in the form of a warning. Because he says that anyone who does not love does not know God. And so if what I just described does not overwhelmingly describe your regular disposition, then that should serve as a conviction point in your heart. And it should cause you to look vertically upwards to God in order to ascertain whether or not God has truly saved you in Christ. Because the life that Jesus saves is the same life through whom Jesus will spread his love. And if you've truly encountered the vertical love from God, you will now express radical, horizontal love towards other people. Because loving others particularly fellow Christians, according to John, is a demonstrative effect of God's love being extended to you. So one of the application points we learn from God's extravagant love towards us personally is that we then practice towards the body of Christ, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, the effect of God's love then interpersonally. Okay, lastly, here's the last principle we're gonna learn about God's love here in 1 John 4, and it is a second application point of experiencing God's love. We then show to the world the power of God's love. 
We show to the world the power of God's love. Now, I love this. Look at John's logic in verse 12. He says, no one has ever seen God. Meaning that none of us have ever seen God in his totality. Sure, we may see glimpses of God. We may see glimpses of the effect that God has on earth. We see glimpses of his power and his working, but we have never perfectly, clearly seen the face of God. But then John tells us, but God abides, God's love abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So very simply, what John tells us here is that as God's love invades the heart of an individual, follow me here, as God's love invades the heart personally inside of an individual, and then that changed individual then attaches himself, attaches herself to a group of changed individuals. And then we start practicing God's love interpersonally that love that we've experienced personally we then practice it interpersonally in an undeniable radical sacrificial way towards each other in the body of Christ what John says is that now as a group of saved people who have been embodied by God's love we look out for and we will the best for one another as that local body of believers radically loves each other that way, John says, that's the way that the world catches a glimpse of God. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful that that we as changed people in the body of Christ and the way we practice undeniable, radical love towards one another, John says, no one has ever seen God But when they look at that taking place, they catch a glimpse of him. And what John is simply saying here in his his letter to the church at Ephesus, he's ultimately just saying in a different way the exact same thing that Jesus said in John's gospel in John 13, verse 35. Because Jesus says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So brothers and sisters of Mill City Church, let's keep doing the hard things. Let's keep having hard conversations. Let's keep sacrificially providing for one another so that we might show the world a glimpse of the greatness of our God. As we close our time together this morning, there are moments in life when God humbles us. Areas where we were so confident that we knew so much, but where we were shown that we were misunderstanding all along. We thought we knew so much, but then we were confronted with realities we had never considered I wonder if this morning has been one of those moments in your own personal heart as it pertains to Christmas. Has God shown you a Christmas truth you've never considered before? Has he revealed to you his gospel gift that he wants to give you 
that gospel gift that resides behind the scenes of the manger, but that the scriptures that we've seen in 1 John 4 just brings to the forefront, then let today be a day of epiphany for you. Let today be the day that you respond to God's extravagant love for you in the manger of Jesus. Let today be the day that you receive the purpose of his love to reconcile you to himself and also to other people. Or let today be the day that you remember, that you remember the demonstration of his love for you. Let today be a day that you resolve with a commitment to practice his love towards others so that you might, along with the body of Christ, show collectively to the world the power that his transformative love can ring in people's hearts. So as the old Christmas carol sings, now to the Lord sing praises, all you within this place, and with true love and brotherhood, each other now embrace. The holy tide, this holy tide of Christmas, all other doth efface. O tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. O tidings of comfort and joy. Father, thank you for the love of Jesus, the extravagant, sacrificial, purposeful, effective love of Jesus. This morning, as we have read your scriptures, Lord, we are humbled We are humbled that you would chase after us when when we were running hard away from you. We're humbled today that you would give to us when we took so much away from your glory. And we are humbled today that you chose to love us and you chose to die for us, Jesus, when we were at our worst. You gave us your best when we were at our worst. And so, Father, today, cause us to marvel over your love, but also cause us today, I pray, empower us to respond to your love. And so whether it's a first-time decision for Jesus or whether it's simply a recommitment or simply a renewal in our minds of just being thankful and grateful for the way you've loved us, Lord, I pray that you would work in your people to respond to your love today. And we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.